This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio Season 4, Episode 30. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 30 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Wow, Episode 30 already, Randy. It's been a busy year. <laughs> it has. So for our listeners, today we're speaking with Scott McLeod, author co-author of Different Schools for a Different World. Scott is an associate professor of educational leadership at the University of Colorado, Denver, and is widely recognized as one of the United States' leading experts in pre-K-12 school technology leadership. He's a founding director of the University Council for Educational Administration's Center for the Advanced Study of Technology Leadership in Education, the only U.S. university center dedicated to the technology needs of school administrators. He's co-creator of the Did You Know? Shift Happens video series and the Four Shifts Technology Integration Discussion Protocol. Scott blogs regularly about technology leadership and shares numerous resources through his Digital Leadership Daily SMS service. He's a frequent keynote speaker and workshop facilitator at regional, state, national, and international conferences. He's written over 170 articles and other publications and is the co-editor of What School Leaders Need to Know About Digital Technologies and Social Media. So welcome to our podcast, Scott. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's uh, great that you're here. We've been following you for quite some time. And last, uh, I think it was November or December, out in uh, San Francisco at the Ed Surge uh, conference. I got to attend one of your presentations. Uh, and now we've been uh, diving into your book, Different Schools for a Different World, and we're looking forward to chatting about that today. Cool. Thanks, Randy. So let's start off with uh, Different Schools for a Different World. And tell us a little bit about the big ideas behind this book and why it's a text that school leaders such as us should be checking out. Different Schools for a Different World is part of a larger series of books from Solution Tree. Um, Bill Ferreter, um, who some of you may know, uh, put together a stable of authors and really wanted to talk about some concrete things that people could do in the classroom uh, to make changes for the benefit of students. Um, but he wanted an overview book as well to kind of uh, mention the larger landscape um, within which these changes are operating, how we should think about them. So this book is actually that sort of big picture book that frames and introduces the whole series. Um, 
when Dean and I talked about we wanted the book to cover, we really focused on this idea that we've been talking about school reform for a long time, right? There's been decades and decades of educational reform work, but most of that work seems to be about reifying existing models and about trying to do the same things we've always done, just a little bit better, right? Or maybe uh, uh, get a few more kids above a certain bubble line on a standardized test or whatever. And Dean and I both really think that schools need to be different, not just a little better. And that's really what the book is all about. So we really love and connect with that idea of how do we reimagine school and reimagine education. And that's uh, very much connects to the work that we're trying to do here. So um, looking forward to talking a little bit about those shifts and some of your other ideas. So let's uh, shift to that, actually, your four big shifts in your book. And can you tell us a little bit about these shifts and why they're really critical for deeper learning? I work with a lot of schools. Um, I think I've worked with over 300 school organizations now and counting. Um, and when we talk about how the world outside is changing, um, we really try to figure out what does it mean for schools to adapt to a different context, right? So, you know, schools have been functioning for decades and decades in sort of an industrial uh, society model. We no longer really live in industrial society here in America, for example, and most other developed countries. We're really trying to figure out now in this transition period, what does learning and teaching schooling need to look like in more of a global innovation society rather than a factory society, manufacturing society. So when I think about what kind of changes schools are trying to make. I've tried to keep it relatively simple for school administrators. And we really talk about sort of four main shifts that I see school organizations making. The first one is a shift from lower level thinking tasks um, to having students spend more time uh, doing deeper learning work, right? So how do we get kids to engage in thinking work that has greater cognitive complexity? So critical thinking, problem solving, those advanced communication collaboration skills that we say we want students to want. We talk about things like creativity and global awareness, you know, the stuff that's on the upper end of Bloom's taxonomy or the furthest wedges of Webb's depth of knowledge wheel is really the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Um, we have a lot of evidence that students still spend the vast majority of their time doing low-level mental work, factual recall and procedure regurgitation. And the question is, how do we start shifting that work so that kids are doing deeper thinking, more cognitively complex work more often? So that's shift one. Second shift is really around agency. You know, we spend all this time in district mission statements talking about how kids should be lifelong learners, right? And that implies uh, an enormous element of self-direction and ownership of their learning once they leave us. But they're immersed environments that tell them what to do every minute of every day up until the moment they graduate high school. So how do we create opportunities for students to be self-directed learners before they leave us, while they still might have some opportunity for adult guidance and so on. And what we also know is that when we give kids greater agency and control and ownership of their own learning, it not only allows us to individualize and personalize a little bit, but student engagement also goes up. Um, the cognitive psychologists uh, are pretty clear that the number one factor in human motivation is some control over what you do. Um, and we violate that on a regular basis every day in most schools. Third shift is really around authentic work. It's around how do we take classrooms that are pretty isolated and disconnected, subject area silos, uh, removed from the outside world around them, and try to connect kids to more real authentic work. How do we 
you know, sort of address those uh, age old questions about why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What meaning does this have for me? What relevance does this have for me now in my future life? And when we connect students to authentic work in local communities, online communities, global communities, um, they stop asking those questions. Um, and I think we also have some interesting opportunities to connect students to relevant individuals and organizations uh, in areas that they're passionate about and help them create their own personal learning and networks uh, while they're still with us. Fourth shift is really analog to digital. It's this idea that, of course, we live in a digital information landscape. I think schools. <clears throat> primary job is to prepare kids for the dominant information landscape of their time. Um, I think we're struggling with this in most schools, even ones that have one-to-one -one initiatives. We still haven't figured this out. Uh, but the other exciting thing for me, of course, is that when we get uh, powerful digital learning tools in the hands of kids, it enables those first three shifts to happen in more powerful ways. So kids can engage in deeper learning, have more agency, do authentic work in ways that are much more meaningful um, than we can without the tech. So that's the four big shifts. So definitely connect to those four. Uh, the, the work that we're doing here and the conversations that we have, every one of those four ideas are definitely embedded in that work. So lots of connections that we make here. So as schools um, make this shift to reach richer and deeper levels of learning, what are some of the essential building blocks that we should be aware of as we move in that direction? So, you know, it's interesting. We see schools playing with a variety of different things uh, in various configurations and depths. So some schools might be playing around with project inquiry-based learning. Other schools might be trying to figure out how they redesign learning spaces. Uh, we've got a number of schools that are trying to rethink traditional schedules, right, and how those are limiting factors. Um, some folks are playing around with one-to-one -one computing initiatives, right, and trying to close some equity gaps and enable some new opportunities for students. We've got, you know, other schools that are playing around with standards-based grading or maybe even more significantly competency-based progressions. We have multiple states that are trying to think that through. Um, so lots of different building blocks that are out there. You know, some of the other ones that are out there include, you know, how do we get kids engaged in authentic real world opportunities through community projects, internships, capstones, digital simulations, and so on. Um, how do we take advantage of these new digital and online information resources that are floating around out there? So, you know, maybe we can save a little textbook money, for example, um, and customize learning a little bit. Um, one of the underutilized um, building blocks that I think um, most schools haven't tapped into very well are these online communities of interest or practice that would be valuable both for teachers and for students. Um, let's see, what else is on that list? Uh, some adaptive software and data systems that might allow us to uh, individualize learning in some way um, in, in some of these interesting blended models that are coming out. And then finally, uh, what's probably the hardest for us to wrap our head around right now is this idea of alternative credentialing. You know, we have a increased interest in things like badges and micro-credentials. Schools haven't really figured out what that means for them, but it's starting to become clear to both schools and universities that we're no longer the only uh, potential credentialing uh, groups in town. Uh, and so how do we figure out how to show what our students learn and know and can be able to do in maybe smaller slices than the traditional credit um, or degree or diploma that we've uh, focused on in the past. So those are some of the blocks. So within those four shifts, there are lots of different pathways that um, leaders and educators can put together um, different models in which they're going to get to that deeper learning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you start looking at deeper learning schools around the country, 
um, you know, every place is different. You know, mm -hmm. some place will double down on this one, another place will be dabbling with that one, but they're all trying to take at least some of these and trying to figure out how to move school in new directions in whatever model they think makes the most sense for their students and their community and their context. Mm -hmm. And that's an important piece, the piece about context. And, you know, Randy and I have also been investigating some of these ideas through another podcast, our Shift Your Paradigm podcast, where we're right. really talking about leading in a learner-centered environment, which is very much what year four shifts are articulating a more learner-centered environment. And context matters, what you can do and how you can dabble in as you're sharing those building blocks will look different. So let's go back yeah. to the why. Um, you share some arguments in your books about why school needs to be different. Mm -hmm. And you sort of address the many of the top arguments we hear, um, futuring and, and what we want to do for our kids. Talk to us a little bit about those arguments that you, that you share. Sure, absolutely. So Dean and I talk a lot about relevance gaps. You know, my blog is named Dangerously Irrelevant. I think a lot about um, how schools are increasingly relevant to the needs of their own students and society. Um, and so Dean and I have defined a relevance gap as any space in which society is changing faster than the schools are themselves, right? So as, you, as we all know, um, we're seeing very rapid pace of change in the world around us. Schools are moving slower. And we think there are at least six key dynamics that are worth paying attention to or six key relevance gaps um, that are uh, of a special note to schools. So the first one is really around um, this digital information landscape that I referred to before, right? Like we have this it's a whole new ball game. We're no longer ink on paper. We're bits in the ether, mobile devices, you know, hyper-connected. Um, and uh, those new affordances and those new environments bring all kinds of new challenges, um, but also new powers. And I think that if, you, like I said earlier, if uh, most schools really think about the characteristics of that new environment compared to the old ink on paper space, um, it's pretty clear that most schools are really challenged to prepare kids for whatever this new digital information landscape brings to us. You know, and just to pick one example out of many, um, you know, right now, both students and adults are really struggling with what does it mean to be information literate? You know, we see all kinds of uh, challenges around validity and reliability and fake news and how do you know what's trusted and credible um, and valid. And so we just see this tremendous challenge about we have this increasingly complex uh, information space where everybody has a voice, but very little filtering is happening. And so we used to rely on traditional publishers to do that filtering for us, and now we have to do it ourselves. And we're, not, we're just not giving our graduates the skills they need to operate in this space. And that's just one example out of many for sort of that first um, relevance gap. Second one is really around sort of new forms of learning, right? I mean, this new information landscape gives us tremendous ways to learn. So we've got, you know, kindergartners connecting globally with other five-year-olds through Twitter. We've got kids who are making their own apps in middle school. And, you know, we've got, you know, seventh graders writing their own books and hitting the top of the charts in, you know, the iTunes categories. We've got, um, you know, all kinds of examples of, you know, kids discovering asteroids and making virtual worlds and Minecraft. And you know, there's just, you know, thousands of examples that we could come up with of 
youth doing really interesting work with tech. And then the question for us in school is, you know, you ask a kid to sit down and read through a chapter in a textbook, which has already been censored heavily. So it's as boring as possible. And then regurgitate some answers. And the kids are like, well, when I go home, I can learn like this. And I come to school and yeah, there's, you know, like I'm not super enthused about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like there's all these new forms of learning that are possible and we've just been really slow to take up many of those uh, in, in many of our classrooms. Um, Third, third relevance gap, uh, which is tightly accompanied with number two, is student engagement. You know, we have uh, very clear evidence from the Gallup poll and from anecdotal evidence and walking through your hall and seeing all the kids who are slumped or disengaged that uh, kids are really struggling to find meaning and relevance to what we ask them to do these days. So, you know, just some numbers from Gallup alone show that about one out of four fifth graders already has checked out mentally and says that they're not engaged. And you're lucky if you can get one out of three high school kids to say they're engaged in their learning. You know, they might be there, you know, they're compliant. They're there because they want to see their friends engage in extracurriculars. The law makes them whatever, but they're not mentally engaged in the learning. They're just going through the motions and playing the game of school and hoping whatever's next is better. Mm -hmm. um, so that's gap number three, um, you know, and, and many times that's a gap between in-school learning and home learning because at home they can direct their own learning in areas that they're passionate about. The fourth gap is really around economic and workforce preparation. You know, if you look at the jobs data, the only area of economic growth um, in most developed countries is in jobs that require non-routine mental work, those higher level thinking schools that we talked about earlier. Um, and so at a time when any kind of manual labor job or routine mental work job, like a data entry person or a customer service rep or a bank teller, right? Like all those jobs have been on the decline for four or five decades now. And yet something like 75 to 85% of kids' day-to-day -day work is still low-level mental work. So in an economic era in which the only job growth in any developed country seems to be complex thinking work jobs, right? We're emphasizing exactly the opposite in schools. So that's sort of this fourth relevance gap. Uh, gap five is really around speed of innovation. It's just really this idea that schools are slow to move, society is changing faster. How do we live in perpetual beta or some mode of that like the um, more forward thinking companies do where we're reiterating faster, we're learning from that, we're creating new models and trying things, uh, where we're bigger risk takers and so on. And then the sixth gap is really around equity. It's around as we make these moves, um, are we um, closing existing and traditional um, equity gaps or are we exacerbating them? I think we see a lot of signals that show us that um, in particular, poor youth of color, right, are getting left behind in these moves. Um, so maybe an issue of access where they don't have access to the devices or the internet bandwidth, either at school or at home. Um, but it's also an issue of usage. So what we're seeing, for example, is that even when um, traditionally underserved students have access to computers, we more often ask them to, to do drill and kill work, right, as part of remediation and foundational skills building, rather than allowing them to um, gain those upper level thinking skills that are really going to allow them to thrive in this new world that we live in. So, you know, I've seen a number of schools that will have some kind of remediation slash intervention slash extension block of time, right? And guess what? All the white middle class kids get to do extension and interesting things with, you know, tech and problem-based learning and all the poor kids of color mostly get to do drill and kill remedial work. And that's how that gap widens rather than closes. Mm -hmm. 
So in your in your book and here on the podcast, you've done such a great job of of outlining what are those four shifts and also talking about these six gaps. So let's talk sort of down at the ground level, some of some of this deeper learning model schools. Um, sure. And we've actually connected with Iowa Big and are very inspired by their work. What are some other schools that you would suggest our listeners check out that are moving into this area of deeper learning with some great success and, and managing those six gaps fairly well? Yeah. So, uh, of course, Iowa Big is a phenomenal school. They're probably the most uh, innovative school in the state of Iowa, which is where I were, was before I moved to Colorado. We actually have a number of different national networks of deeper learning schools. So any of those networks um, may or may not have some schools in your state that are worth visiting. So everything from EL education, which used to be expeditionary learning, uh, big picture learning, new tech network, the high tech high schools. Uh, we've got two networks called Edvisions and Envision, um, which are both doing some interesting things. Um, there's some Asia Society schools, um, the New York Performance Assessment Consortium. And then of course, many of the traditional schools that we don't think of very often anymore as being sort of cutting edge, but actually were really ahead of their time in terms of student agency. Um, so you think about places like Sudbury and Montessori, Reggio Emilia schools, Waldorf Democratic schools, like all those old traditional sort of models are uh, coming back as people say, hey, you know what? Those schools aren't just uh, fun for kids to be in, but actually did a great job of preparing kids to really be self-directed learners and so on. Um, when I think about individual schools, you know, we mentioned several in the book. Um, one of my favorite schools I've ever visited um, is a high school in Los Angeles called New Village Girls Academy. It's part of the Big Picture Learning Network. Um, at New Village, 100% um, of the girls are basically living in poverty. About half of them already have, are already our parents or are pregnant. About 30% of them are in some kind of foster care situation, either institutionally or a foster home. Um, many, most, uh, you know, English is not their first language and so on. Um, and then probably about every disadvantaging characteristic you can think of. So sexual abuse, physical abuse, drug abuse, self-harm, incarceration, you know, all, all the sort of things that we see that traditionally would really challenge students to be successful in their lives and, and at school. Um, and New Village Girls Academy is the only all-girls public school in California. And they got about 110, 120 girls there. And they do a phenomenal job of getting girls back on track and, um, you know, sends a tremendous number of them off to college. Hmm. So, and they're really organized very thoughtfully, intentionally about what the needs of their girls are. So, uh, you know, they have sort of four main pillars that they operate around. The first one is that they have an incredibly strong advisory process. And advisory to New Village doesn't mean let's buy an advisory curriculum and run kids through canned lessons mm -hmm. for a few minutes, you know, once or twice a week. Um, what it means is that you show up every morning with the same 20, 25 girls in your advisor, and you're not only doing your humanities coursework, English and social studies stuff, but your advisor is also checking in with you. Right. So how's your baby doing? When's the last time you saw a doctor? I heard your mom's getting out of prison. I heard your brother just got jailed last night. How do you feel about that? What kind of resources and supports do you need? You know, like all the things that, um, you know, sort of the social, emotional and larger context needs that the, that the girls have. And then there's also school support personnel and, of course, supports in the community that the school connects girls with as need be. Um, so that's pillar one, which is great. The second pillar, which I thought was fascinating, which is uh, 
they take these girls, which most schools would say need some really basic remedial work. Um, and instead they push them really hard into do deep, deep passion and project-based learning. Um, and so the girls pick inquiry projects that will last multiple weeks. They come up with really high level guiding essential questions, um, as Wiggins and Matai would say, and uh, just really do some complex thinking work and research work and problem solving work um, in ways that I think I wish some of my own children had an opportunity to do um, and have never gotten, for example, in their AP courses. You know, it seems like in their AP classes, instead of doing high level thinking, they're mostly just regurgitating even more content in the traditional class. And, you know, the girls in the village are doing some really deep thinking work. It's very cool. Um, third pillar is really around um, internships. So they send girls out every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon. Everybody, every girl has a city transportation pass. And, you know, these internships range from something small and, and local, like a bicycle shop or the tax prep shop, all the way up to something big, right? They have the city as a resource. So they might send them to the senator's office or the science museum or, you know, uh, the hospice or whatever. Um, and the girls are really going there not to be free labor, but to learn how to run the place, which I think is really cool. So, you know, when I was there visiting, um, I was talking with a girl who had just spent she was interested in animals so she spent the last semesters at a dog kennel you know learning what the, how running the business was there and she really liked being around the dogs and she liked the business aspects of that but realized that about 80 90 percent of the job was cleaning cages and that wasn't for her so the next semester when i was there she was interning with a dog trainer right and she was really sort of fascinated by the psychological aspects of working with animals and she and I had a really rich conversation about whether there's any difference between training dogs and training orcas at SeaWorld for example um, and that morning she had uh, you know submitted her SAT scores to five major universities that had strong zoology programs and was heading off to a four-year uh, college somewhere so you know the the gap between uh, dog kennel internship and zoology major at an awesome university is smaller than we might think. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last sort of pillar of the school is they focus a lot on mindfulness. It's this mm -hmm. idea that they want their girls to be spiritually and emotionally and cognitively centered amidst all the chaos that might be around them. And so they practice and live that every day, and, and um, that seems to be working as well. So, you know, I think it's a great example of how we can be really thoughtful and intentional about serving specific populations in a ways that can really get them back on track and do that well, rather than just shoveling them into some alternative school format where they do more cheap packets or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, Sounds like a, an amazing learning environment. Really powerful yeah. example. Yeah, I'd love to try to connect with them for Shift Your Paradigm. <laughs> right. So you've shared a, a good portion of your work here, and we linked some resources in the show notes for our listeners. What's next for you? What are you working on now that you'd like to share with our listeners? Mm -hmm. um, lots of things. We're uh, coming out with our second book in that same Solution Tree series, um, which is really going down the other end, which is, you know, our first book is really around big picture stuff um, that Dean and I wrote. My uh, Iowa colleague, Julie Graber, and I are, focusing on the other end of the equation, which is all this big picture rhetoric around how schools need to change and why is important. But what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? How do, how do we shift lessons and units and instructional activities in ways that start moving towards these shifts, right? So Julie and I have a 
discussion protocol that we're using with teachers and principals and instructional coaches and tech integrationists called the Four Shifts Protocol. Um, and so what our new book is coming out is it introduces the protocol, uh, talks about why you might use it instead of a model like SAMR or, frame, uh, or TPAC or something like that. And then we walk through maybe eight to 10 lessons where we show how we use the protocol to redesign in the book and then give tips and strategies for, for using the protocol in your own school or district. So it's very much a roll up your sleeves, down in the weeds book about how to redesign stuff. And that's going to be titled something like uh, redesigning tech infused lessons mm -hmm. for learning or something like that. Mm -hmm. So sounds um, fascinating. So, yeah. So that's coming out. Um, and then here in Colorado, you know, we have a number of what I might call deeper learning schools, you know, schools that are doing a lot of project and inquiry based work, doing some interesting hands on STEM stuff, for example. Um, but they're not networked together. So my goal is to not only identify these places, but start bringing them together to start to create a critical mass of schools within the state. You know, maybe we have a once or twice a year meetup where we share what we're doing with each other and learn from each other. Um, and then also create this critical mass of schools that talks about what school could be instead, right? And then so we can, we can point other administrators, policymakers, and so on to this network of schools um and what they're doing and so accompanying all this work will be a blog called colorado innovates where i start telling these cool stories with pictures and narrative and so on um so those are a couple of big projects coming up it's kind of fun nice exciting well yeah. thank you thank you so much for joining us today scott yeah it's great to be here thanks for the opportunity to talk so to learn more about scott's work you can visit some of the links in the show notes links to his books that protocol he mentioned um scott's blog dangerously irrelevant you can even check out uh, scott on twitter at mcleod each episode we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking conversation so this episode's question how can you work towards the four shifts and essential building blocks in your school or district if you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode 30. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Scott. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.